0: This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That
1: if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions buildings, and zero emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at Emissions dot org.
2: Hi, I'm Andy. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emission Show. Tonight we are looking at food security and global perspectives. Climate change is making it hard for poor farming communities in Asia. Claire Westwood from Penang talks to Vivian about Argo ecology communities in the Philippines and the women who are building social capital to ride the storm. Claire motivates resilience and takes heart from the exhortation... of Lord Data C, to hear the cries of the poor, to hear the cries of the earth. Claire is a researcher with the Penang Peace and Justice Commission.
3: Claire
1: Westwood is in Penang. She's a researcher on food and agriculture with the Third World Network. She has been building community resilience for climate change in India, Philippines and Bangladesh and at present she heads the Justice and Peace Commission in the Penang Diocese of the Catholic Church of Malaysia. When we came back from our holiday in Malaysia, listeners, everybody wanted to know about the wonderful food we'd eaten. I think all my friends must be foodies, and indeed we did have some lovely food. But tonight's theme is about a different aspect of food, not having enough, not being able to grow it in the traditional way, and the fear that climate change is already starving a lot of people. So, Claire, thank you very much for speaking to us from Penang. You have had such a wealth of experience in Asia. Can you tell us first about a typical farming community that you've worked with in Asia, and how climate change is affecting them?
0: Um, I basically worked with with groups that worked with uh, rural farming communities. So, for instance, when I went to India, um, I met communities who told me that the rains and the patterns of, of rains had changed. Example. The monsoons did not come at the expected time. The rains were were different. Uh, they told me there were 17 kinds of rain before, and the wrong rain at the wrong time would affect the harvest. Um, in other places, uh, vegetables would produce black fruit or would wither and die uh, for forest gatherers, uh, like women whom I accompanied into the forest. They go there every day to collect food and to collect edibles and other non-timber forest products like leaves and shoots that they would sell. Uh, they were increasingly finding less forest produce, and this affected their food security and livelihood directly. Um, so this would be a typical example of a rural community where climate change was making it harder for them to to be food secure and How did you work with them? Um, my work involved working with the NGO who was working with the poor communities. Um, and who wanted to start working on climate change. So my job was to facilitate the process of getting staff members and communities to understand what climate change and its impacts were, what the implications and challenges for rural communities were, and how to build community resilience. So for the organizations, it would involve uh, capacitating them to facilitate the process with their target communities. For the communities, it was for them to run the process themselves with the help of the NGO, So I would first meet with the organization, we would have workshops, and then we would together engage the communities to see if they wanted to take up work on on building resilience. And if they did so, then we would do with them a resilience assessment to assess where they were in terms of resilience and vulnerability and what action uh, they wanted to take to improve their resilience. Um, and the way we interacted with them, the way we we facilitated this process was simple. It was participative. We would use role-play charts. We did not use, for instance, PowerPoint. And the communities were always excited and empowered when they finally understood
1: the truth about climate change and that you know, there was something they could do about it. Well, Um, this is a bit abstract for me, the resilience. I I would like to know what could they do? What were the practical steps they could take?
0: The resilience assessment would be... involved different sectors so they would seek to uh, to see where they were weak and try to improve that for instance um, the farm design was the farm design in a way that made them more exposed for instance to climate hazards example strong winds storms uh, cyclones uh, floods or they would we would look at their technological capital how how much biodiversity there was on the farm mm-hmm. how many different kinds of crops they were growing and whether they could grow more could for instance, if there were shortage of water, then would, would it mean that they would have to think about growing crops that needed less water? Example, millet. Uh, it would also involve their social capital, which is a very important aspect of resilience. Uh, that is, how organized were they? How um, empowered were they? How self-confident? Did women play a very strong role because we, have, we see communities where women play a very strong role. They are stronger. They're more resilient. Uh, what
1: was happening with their use? Yes. how was their benefit-sharing processes, things like that. Right. Well, you know, the Green Revolution promised to feed millions of people. And I imagine that the people who benefited from the green revolution were not these small farmers but bigger farmers who could afford the investment or those who've survived the green revolution but meantime there was there's been famine still that hasn't been eradicated by the green revolution and you've written quite a bit about explaining it i learned quite a lot from your articles about what the green revolution involved and you said that there was a food crisis in 2008 and one billion people went hungry worldwide but in the same year the profits of fertilizer and seed companies increased by 70%. In other words, they raked in trillions while other people were experiencing extreme hunger. So at that level now, we talked about the local village level, but now at the big level of corporations, what needs to change?
0: The Green Revolution is essentially failed. I mean, if you, if you want an expert verdict, look at the ISTAT, that is the International Assessment of Agricultural Knowledge, Science and Technology for Development, It was put together by 400 experts across the world, funded by World Bank, FAO, and so on. It came out in 2009, and they said that business as usual was not an option. And this toxic model of agriculture, which focused focused only on productivity, was actually detrimental. And that small agroecological farms were the way forward. And since then, there's been a lot more attention worldwide about agroecology. That has to be the way forward. But agroecology, not as a technology, but as a movement uh, based on food sovereignty, putting people at the center, putting small farmers at the center. That has to be the only way forward because the industrial model of agriculture is essentially a failed system. And it, it actually contributes to climate change. 30% of greenhouse gas emissions come from the industrial Um, model of agriculture and Mm. they only supply 30% of the food on 70% of the land whereas the peasant uh, uh, food web supplies
1: 70% of the world's food on only 25% of arable land. Yes, well you've written a lot about food sovereignty and I think you could just define that as people being able to control enough food for them to eat. And it was the title of one of your talks you gave in Indonesia. But I'm worried yeah. about how can people have food sovereignty when countries like China are buying up land in other, other countries like in Africa to grow food for their home population. And I wonder how those local people can have, have any sort of food sovereignty if they don't have ownership of the land.
0: That's, the, that's been the fundamental fight you know, uh, against land grabbing and for what we call genuine agrarian reform. The Foodsoft Movement has been fighting for this all over, in Latin America, in Asia. Um, this land grabbing, it's a major problem across the world. It's really a violation of the right to land. And, um, well, it is a fight, Vivian, you know, hmm. because small farmers are having to stand up and fight against these huge governments and against huge companies taking over their land. And governments are basically selling out their people, but when they lease out land like this for, not just, uh, for food, but also for plantations, for cash crops, for logging, you know, it's the same scenario. Mm. The, the people are, I mean, they stand up and fight back. And that's what it, it is now. That's the way it is now. People are fighting back on their own, aided by, yes, uh, you know, NGOs and so on. But it's really a very unequal fight.
1: Yes, I've realised from the research I've done for this programme that there's a big fight, and I read about at the Paris Climate Conference. I had heard about groups, you know, putting out the red line against the coal companies and coal-fired power and all of that, but uh, apparently groups like Via Campesina and Grain, I presume those are the NGOs you're talking about, they tried to expose the industrial food system and said that they are blocking, that that industrial food chain is blocking the path of climate resilience and they said we could halve greenhouse gas emissions within a few decades if we redistributed the land to small farmers and they said small farmers will enrich the soil and grow a diversity of crops and indigenous communities will preserve the forests and they symbolically attacked the industrial food system in Paris by painting a red line outside one of the biggest food and water corporations called Danone. And Mm. I I wondered, did any of those demands that those uh, NGOs made get into the international agreement at Paris, the climate agreement?
0: Not that I know of. I mean,
1: directly. It's basically, um,
0: I think the Paris Agreement are really very broad lines about what countries would do to mitigate and of course there is this commitment to adaptation, right? That would maybe possibly come under adaptation, like if they would change their land use patterns, uh, change their model of agriculture. It, I think they're leaving it to countries to take up, take it up on their own mm. so that, and then they would put it under the banner of adaptation, you know, and get money for that or apply for money for that.
1: Well, uh, you know, are those NGOs mobilizing? Is it is it an equivalent movement to the great big movement that we've now got against coal and gas and oil? Is it similar, you know, in mobilizing people? Mobilizing people on the ground, yes. I wouldn't really say it's gone up. It, it's been very successful
0: at the policy level. Of course, the fight the fight is there and the fight it always goes on, but they don't seem to be listening. No. I mean, the CBD, for instance, yeah, there's a lot of good NGOs there that lobby, you know, uh, against deforestation and, and, and everything else. And that fight seems to be ongoing all the time. So really, the movement is strong, but it's very much at ground level. So people are just doing it. It's, hmm. it's more an autonomous, it's autonomous action. I, I don't see much at the policy level really for, you know, major, major changes. Maybe Latin America, yes, it's a little bit more advanced agroecology. Mm -hmm. Uh, but in other places I would say it's, it's still largely autonomous. It's really the people, you know, taking action themselves. It's really the movement
1: on the ground. Mm. It's, funny. It. it's funny you say that because tonight we interviewed an Australian farmer who's got this pioneering method of uh, crop growing and there's no inputs, you know, no fertilizer much and not much um, herbicide. And he says the same thing, that the government and even the scientists seem to be blocking these ideas, but they are doing it. So farmers are just networking among themselves and internationally yeah. and they're just putting it into, well, I appreciate the. Well, one thing that troubles me, though, is this business about big industrial size farms. I, I have never actually seen a farm like that, but I've seen films, you know, gigantic harvesters, monocrops, you know, and the harvesters going up and down, getting huge amounts of wheat or corn. And I appreciate that, Traditional small farms are still feeding 70% of the world. As, as you said before, 70% mm-hmm. of our food comes from those small diverse farms. But, but isn't there still room for those big monoculture farms to feed the number of people who've now moved to the cities yes. and the future world population, really?
0: No, I, I would say I'm a real, I'm a real diehard fan huh? of agroecological, small agroecological farms. I really, really these large monocultures they don't work Vivian. Mm. I mean we've had what how many 19, since nineteen late nineteen fifties, 1960, the Green Revolution mm. until now. And they've obviously failed and they're so they're not efficient, they're not resource efficient. They're not biodiverse. So monocultures, whether they're plantations or whether they're crops They really are counter, counterproductive. They're counter. They're not ecological. They don't bring the benefits that they, they promise to bring. And there's been so much evidence that they don't work. Mm. So I would say really that, you know, going back to small resource efficient farms that are low carbon, uh, there's low reliance on external inputs. That's really the way forward because we will, we are running out of resources. We cannot sustain this mechanized kind of uh, industrial model of agriculture. It's, it's just, I mean, maybe it, it, it's for big farmers in America and
1: in the big rich countries, but you know, as, as we can see, they're not really feeding the world. No. They, as you said, they feed only 30%. And then I was horrified to read yes. in your articles that they use up 80% yeah. of the world's arable land and water. And yes. that accounts for 50% of the world's greenhouse gas emissions. And meanwhile, they're deforesting 13 million hectares each year. And the trillions are going to Syngenta and DuPont and Monsanto and Dow. But yeah. the, the others, the, the majority world, is actually being impoverished. So I am convinced by those figures. So that was Claire Westwood. She's a researcher on food and agriculture with the Third World Network. Yeah. Let's talk about the, the contrast. You know, what are the people doing on the ground? What are the what are the best ways for small these smaller style farmers to reduce emissions in Asia, in tropical landscapes? What are what are the best methods that you've seen um, you know, innovative things?
0: Diversification, composting Seed conservation, crop rotation, mixed cropping, intercropping, agroforestry—these are not really new, but they seem to be because you know we've been already. The world has sort of been brainwashed that the industrial model is the model. So these these uh, little these agro ecological systems are coming back and getting a lot of dependence, getting a lot of um, attention, getting a lot of uh, success as well. Yes, right. And so, um, uh, they, they work. I mean, one very good example I can give you is Masipag in the Philippines. Yes. Uh, it's also in my article, but they have like 35,000 ecological farmers. Mm-hmm. And over the last 30 years, they've produced 2,000 of their own rice varieties with about 70 farmer rice breeders. So they have proven that ecological agriculture works mm-hmm. and they sustain and they very, con- they are very confident. They have very strong social capital. They invest a lot in the, in people empowerment. And I think that's really the key to sustainable agriculture, which, you know, when you take it as a, if you work it as from a very academic, scientific, scientific technological yes. angle, you omit the, the importance of social capital. And why these small farms and communities work so well, it's because they have very strong
1: social capital. And I, I gather that that sort of farming would require more people. I mean, those big agro farms, industrialised farms, they just have one guy on a tractor and a few people would harvest time, but it's not intensive labor intensive but these smaller farms seem to need a lot more people is that why they're more empowering not really i
0: wouldn't really say that i say they're empowering because the farmers are real farmers they innovate. they find solutions on their own they see what works and they really work with the land you know there is no one size fits all kind of um, uh, there, there is no when they look at problems they don't see it in isolation the way they look at the at the system holistically. As for labor, well, it's also a misconception that uh, small farms use a lot of labor. They're very labor intensive. They do, yes. Certain times during the growing season, yes. Yeah. For instance, weeding, yes, there is a little bit more work. But then, you know, um, they don't have a problem with labor anyway in the in rural a- Asia. They don't have a problem. But it's not all the time. I mean, I have talked to a farmer where he says, "I'm very free after the initial planting and so on." He says, "Then I'm very free." <laughs> you know, so it's really how good you
1: are uh, mm-hmm. at managing your farm so do you see in these countries where you've worked that they're despite this big sort of monstrous industrial power you know as you said it's a very unequal fight do you see these more uh, this style of farming is fighting back is gaining traction that people are getting behind that they're getting more confidence in that rather than saying oh i just need to get more expensive fertilizer and more what they're selling me is there more confidence developing in this being the right way to go where there's strong networking, yes. Where these farms and farmers network
0: with one another, or they belong to a coalition, or they belong to, well, any, any kind of, uh, even a, just an informal network, they tend to sort of, they tend to grow better. It's difficult for isolated farmers trying to do this alone. Yes. Then, then, then I hear stories of where, you know, like one single farmer is trying to go it alone, and then everyone around him are conventional farmers who tell him that it won't work, you mm-hmm. can't farm without pesticides and so on. So that networking, where, where you find farmers that work together, then there is strength and there's they, sustainability and the movement does grow. Mm-hmm. I would say, yes, it's growing. Uh, the movement is growing. But to be realistic also, there is a large proportion of farmers out there who are still very much Green Revolution farmers, not because they want to, but some, they, some, they just don't know any other way. So, yeah, we, we, the, the movement is seeking to reach out to these other farmers because when they find that eventually all these fail chemicals are failing, and nothing works anymore. Then they look to their neighbors and see how come he's not using
1: chemicals but his farm is doing better than mine. Well, look, I'd just like to finish with something from the Pope. Um, I was in East Timor a few years ago and I was, it was such a hot day and I wandered into a Catholic church and the, the priest was reading a letter in a very animated way and, and the people were just listening to him. It wasn't a church service. He was just, it was a Saturday afternoon. And later on, I, he came into the cafe where we were and, and I spoke to him and he, I said, what was that letter you were reading? Everyone was very excited by what he said. Oh, it's the Pope. It's the Pope has sent us a letter and I'm telling the people excellent information in this letter about um, oh, wow. our lives. And back in Australia, Australian Catholics were very, a bit more blase about it, I think, to tell the truth. They weren't getting so much on board. But this Laudato Si, I think it may have caught on a lot more in poorer countries because the Pope seemed to be so I thought he was very trenchant. You know, he came up with scathing criticism of the greed and the um, the, the sort of corruption in, involved in, yes, and the corporations. And I've got a quote here from him. He said, in, the Pope said, global, we need a global consensus to plan a sustainable and diversified agriculture. A true ecological approach is to hear both the cry of the earth and the cry of the poor. Now, you're working with an organization called the Penang Justice and Peace Commission. Can you tell us how that translates into action on the land with organizations like that, you know, that sort of peace and justice framework? The commission that I work with is an episcopal commission
0: for Justice and Peace in the Countries of Malaysia, Singapore and Brunei. It was formed in 2013 and they've taken up the call for, you could call it creation justice or ecological justice, uh, which incorporates what you just read out, listening to The Cry of the Earth and The Cry of the Poor. The Pope calls for integral ecology, brings together environmental ecology, social ecology, cultural ecology of daily life, Technological uh, ecology and so on, and so this commission that I, I'm working with now will be devoted to this, to really putting Ladatusi into action and beyond. Because Ladatusi, to me, it's a platform. It's a platform he's given us. It's a launchpad from which you can learn more, you can you can interact more, you can do so much more. But he's given us this launchpad to go out there and really, you know, raise ecological awareness. Calling for, he calls for an ecological conversion, and so our activities will be around. We'll be doing that with firstly awareness raising and maybe uh, even setting up farms where young people can go and become one with the land, you know, to bring back that, that what he calls ecological spirituality. And I think traditional agriculture had a very strong spirituality
1: with the earth and we need to bring that back. That's wonderful. You. So that was Claire Westwood. Yeah. She's a researcher on food and agriculture with the Third World Network. And as you heard, she's working on uh, community resilience in the Justice and Peace Commission in the Penang Diocese of the Catholic Church in Malaysia.
3: Our annual radiothon is almost here and in 2017 3CR is radio for change
1: from June 5th to the 18th we're asking you to help us stay on air by
3: making a generous donation any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible
1: to donate call 03 9419
3: 8377 or donate online at
1: 3cr.org.au 3CR radio for change
2: Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. In this program about food security, the next guest is Alan Broughton. He is the author of a new book called Sustainable Agriculture Versus Corporate Grade. He says that at the global level we produce enough food to feed the present world population and even to 2050. It's just a matter of distribution. So enjoy...
1: Alan Broughton is the co-author of a new book called Sustainable Agriculture versus Corporate Greed. He's had a long association with the Organic Agriculture Association and is their vice president. He's travelled widely and researched soil carbon sequestration. So welcome Alan to the Beyond Zero Emissions show. Thank you. Listen, Alan, we have many listeners, and sometimes they contact me and ask me to report more on the big picture. And your book gives a lot of information about the world picture of agriculture. And I see in the book two competing forms of agriculture one I would call agrochemical farming, using a lot of fertilizer and pesticide, and it has a high cost for the climate. And the other type of agriculture is, you call it, agroecology. And it's usually on smaller, more labour-intensive farms. And my first question is, how, how do they compare in production of food?
3: Uh, very similar, actually. Um, yes, a good agri- agroecological system can produce the same amount of food as a, as a chemical one, but without the side effects.
1: Well, that's a short answer, that's good, but the y- yields from the Green Revolution were trumpeted and they were initially so high, isn't that that industry still trying to tell us that they can feed the world?
3: Well, the the yields were high initially, but because they required a lot of uh, chemical fertiliser and were very prone to pests and diseases and required a lot of uh, pesticides, then over time there has been so much damage done to the the soil that the production has gone down. and in northern India now a lot of farmers are going back to the original varieties because they are far more resilient.
1: Yes, and I noticed in your book that Indonesia has banned a lot of pesticides and stopped subsidising them.
3: Yes, yes, quite a few countries have stopped subsidising them. It was interesting in Indonesia that when they did drop the subsidies, the yields actually went up because people stopped using. They couldn't afford the, the uh, mm. pesticides so much. And there was an increase in yields because there was less pest attack. There's there's a direct correlation between pesticide use and pest attack. In fact, pests, pesticides create pests, just like herbicides create weeds. But they're no solution at all. Mm. So the only solution is to redesign the system so that... You have a, a balanced ecosystem and the predators take care of the pests and you have good soil fertility that produces plants that are just not attractive to pests and diseases. But nitrate fertilisers really stimulate pests and diseases. Mm. They make the, uh, the growth really sappy and they increase the amino acids at the expense of proteins and they make it makes very, very attractive and digestible food for the, for the uh, pests and diseases.
1: Well, I'd like to know, you know, our program is called Beyond Zero Emissions, and so we're really focusing on the climate impact of various types of um, work in the land sector. And I'd like to know, how does agroecology compare to agrochemical farming in those external costs to the climate, like greenhouse gas emissions and soil carbon loss?
3: Okay, yeah, it's quite a complex question. I'll just try and answer it reasonably simply. Um, One of the biggest causes of... uh from agriculture of greenhouse gases is nitrous oxide and most of the nitrous oxide in the air is coming from agriculture and that is largely from nitrate fertilisers like urea, uh, sulphate of ammonia, ammonium nitrate and and all those different kinds of nitrate fertilisers that are used so much. Um, A lot of that is it's not used by the plants and it just goes up into the air as nitrous oxide and this is a really serious pollutant but at the same time nitrogenous fertilizers burn up uh, carbon out of the soil they stimulate particular bacteria and those bacteria when they start running out of food they attack the humus Normally, microbes don't attack humus. Humus is very, very stable form of carbon in the soil. But uh, with when you use a lot of nitrate fertilisers, the, the opposite happens. With agroecology, then um, soil carbon is built because uh, there's a lot of organic matter being returned to the soil uh, and there's no... Um, there's no chemical inputs that are going to upset the soil biology um, and and prevent the uh, the humus from forming.
1: Right. Well, look, now I'd like to go back to that international picture that is a, a big focus in your book. Um, look, a few days, a few years ago, I just remembered in preparing this interview, I interviewed some African women farm workers and they were living amidst plenty, but they couldn't feed their own families. And all the farms produced produced all the farm's produce was exported to Sainsbury's in England and it had a very high carbon footprint. Those women managed to get some improved conditions. They were telling me they got protective gloves and they got a field toilet from Sainsbury. I think they took Sainsbury's to court. But they had even had to start growing food for themselves on the side and they'd formed an agricultural co-op. But they had noticed that climate change was causing unpredictable seasons and they were still insecure for food. So how typical is this in your travels and your knowledge of the world?
3: Well, wherever uh, people who used to have grown their own food, when they become employees, their nutrition always goes down because their wage is never enough to buy the fruit and vegetables that they need so what people tend to do is that they buy the cheapest food and that's the carbohydrates it might be maize or it might be cassava or or flour that sort of thing and there's always a decrease in people's nutritional levels Um, and when um, big companies take over uh, land in in Africa and uh, Southeast Asia and other parts, they want to grow cash crops for export, and so people who used to be able to grow on their own land no longer have that opportunity, and their standard of living really plummets because they um, they just uh, they don't have the the ability to feed themselves properly um the majority of food in in the world is produced by small farmers and uh, we should be supporting them and rather than encouraging um, large scale production mm. everywhere in the world where there's food exported in a large scale it it doesn't Um, it doesn't improve the food security of that population Mm. even in Australia we've got 10% of the population which is food insecure and there's plenty of food produced here. Yes. In fact there's plenty of food produced for everybody in the whole world. There's enough produced to feed the expected population in 2050 Um, so production is not the problem, it's distribution of that production it's an economic issue and a social issue but it's not a production issue so all of these uh, governments and corporations that go on about the need to increase food supply it's it's, it's just rubbish it's because it does not get to the people who really need it
1: well, yes, I note in your book um, many countries with severe hunger are food exporters. And one example was Kenya, which is supplying beef to Europe. And I just thought of Kenya. It's so much in the news at the moment. There's thousands of refugees famished and famine-ravaged people um, from Sudan who um, are fleeing there. And they're in the news right now. We get this sort of media alert, red alert about famine when it's really too late, when really the whole thing should have been much more thought through before that and I wondered wondered how does climate change, which is sort of the big new threat of the 21st century, how does that focus our minds on food security for all nations? Uh,
3: Well climate change uh, increases the Um, the erraticness of weather so it increases droughts, it increases floods and it changes the weather patterns Um, in some parts of the world it's expected that um, conditions will be improved with climate change because there might be better rainfall but in a lot of other places there will be a decrease in rainfall as is happening in parts of Australia and and, and also an increase in the um, the reliability of, of the rain that does occur. It's more likely to occur in big, heavy amounts than it is in uh, in the, the previous more regular ones. Mm. Um, now, the, the the best thing that that farmers or any food producers can do in order to um, ad, to manage. Climate change is to increase the soil carbon content. That is really important because that gives the resilience. Mm. One kilo of humus holds four kilos of water. So you can drought-proof your your place. You can reduce runoff um, just by increasing the soil carbon, and that's what we should all be working at, mm. rather than using. Uh, Agricultural techniques that destroy soil carbon.
1: Mm. All right, well, the next question is about research, and I think um, we know how research led to the Green Revolution and its increased yields, but I'm starting to come to the impression that the scientific establishment may now be causing farm practices that are contributing to climate change. And I'd like to know, how can we reward scientists for helping farmers adapt to climate change? Because that's one of the points in your book. We need to reward them differently than just the way it's happening now.
3: Yes, yes, that's right. Um, Around the world now, the majority of scientific research is funded by private corporations. And of course, they are doing it in their own interest. And so they they need to make a profit from this research. Even our CSIRO now has to make a lot of its own money. It's not fully financed by the government as it used to be. So that means the CSIRO has to produce saleable technologies. And sustainable agriculture is not a uh, not a, uh, a saleable technology. Um, yeah, therefore. It, it, it's not that we can blame the scientists. No. Um, it's it's the funding of the scientists. Yes. And we need to get back to publicly funded research that is focused on um, the environmental needs and the social needs that we have rather than the needs of the big corporations.
1: Yes, well, I think in your book, there was one terrific example. You said... Um, um researchers will be researching, say, a product to control weeds, but there's no equivalent profit for a farmer who invents a system that prevents the weeds. So, you know, if scientists could work with farmers, I'm sure the farmers would be very grateful, and a lot of scientists would feel very um, much more ethically right in the, in the work they're doing. But just around the world, just to finish, Alan, I know there's a lot of resistance. I've heard a lot about La Via Campesina, which gets a lot of uh, peasant uh, agriculturists together with certain manifestos and demands Um, there's permaculture there's victory gardens in the suburbs and i liked one of the things you said that just came up out of brexit in england where okay brexit's happening and there's a group called the land workers alliance and uh, they now see some opportunities for low carbon farming would you just like to finish by telling us what the you know what kind of possibilities are opened up by that
3: uh, yes, there are organisations around the world that are working really hard and quite effectively in in improving agricultural systems. We've got lots of them in Australia too, um, and quite a lot of farmers are changing their their systems. Um, yeah, it's it, it's difficult, but um, yeah, farmers need to be organised and. Organisations like La Via Campesina are wonderful. It's got 200 million affiliated members around the world. Um, even in the United States, um, it's, there's a, it's got a large number of people. I think there's, there's 50,000 members of the uh, National Farmers Union, which is a, a, an organisation of small farmers that is fighting the corporations. Unfortunately, in Australia, we don't have any... Affiliated organisation to the uh, Via Campesina. Mm. It, it's something we need to be working on.
1: Mm. All right. Well, thank you very much, Alan. The thing I liked about the Brexit people, the one the um, low carbon farming, was that they were going to encourage a whole lot of new people coming into farming. You know, young people who might like to be on the land but can't possibly get into it. But to encourage new people, and I think that's a problem in Australia too, with the average age of farmers being quite old.
3: Oh, yes, that's important, but we need to have systems that allow them to get in. At the moment, land prices are just far too high, way beyond the productive capacity of that land. So we need systems of uh, of uh, land, uh, sort of, like a system they have in, in, in Cuba, it's called usufruct. So... You have the land, you don't have to buy the land, and you've got use of that land for as long as you keep using it. And if you stop using it or you use it badly, then you lose it. Um, but it means you don't have to outlie those millions of dollars in order to get into farming in the first place.
1: Great. Right. All right. Well, thank you very much, Ellen. I know you're very busy doing your tour with your book. I'll tell the listeners again the name of the book. It's called... Um, uh, sustainable agriculture versus corporate greed and we've just been speaking to Alan Broughton and just recently we spoke to Elena Garcia who's the other author. Thank you very much, Alan.
3: Okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh
4: Are you wondering how to pay your donation? You can pay online by going to 3cr.org.au or call us on 9419 8377. You can also visit us in person at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy and pay by cash, cheque or EFTPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to.
1: 3CR Radio Change.
2: Welcome back to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Now Viv learns all about feeding food to cars. Professor Pyme has come into the studio for a dramatic tutorial based on the book The End of Plenty.
4: Good evening, listeners, and welcome to the second short talk taken from Joel K. Byrne Jr.'s book, The End of Plenty, The Race to Feed a Crowded World. I'm Professor Patricia Pym. And tonight, I am ably assisted by the charming young Vivian. Hello, listeners. Tonight's talk concerns biofuels and the wolves of Wall Street and attempts to find answers to questions like why were the Tunisians waving baguettes when they triggered the first protests of the so-called Arab Spring in 2011? How many kilograms are in a bushel? Oh, that's easy. Approximately 25 kilos in a bushel. Thank you, Vivian. And why in 2010, against all the laws of supply and demand, with grain supplies stable, did prices double? The answers are complex as usual, but they come down to two simple things. Global corporations and money aided by government regulations. It seems to be happening a lot these days. Yes, indeed, dear Viv. But let's begin at the very beginning with fuel for transport. Humans have always brewed alcohol, and when farmers started using machines like tractors instead of donkeys or bullocks or horses, then fuel costs and food production first became linked. Even cars ran on versions of alcohol brewed from things like wood chips or peanut oil. So what are biofuels? Well, Viv, they're fuels produced from grains or plant material of various kinds. Let's look at two basic types, ethanol and biodiesel. Ethanol is produced from corn and sugarcane. It's a clean-burning, high-octane, non-toxic fuel with little environmental residue. However, its downside is that it uses almost as much energy to produce as the ethanol itself generates, and if the stills used to make it are the old coal-fired variety, its carbon footprint is even worse than its energy generation. Ethanol from sugarcane, on the other hand, primarily produced in Brazil has a much higher energy-to-production ratio. It can produce eight times as much energy as corn ethanol. Many cars in Brazil run solely on cane ethanol or various percentage mixes with gasoline. Biodiesel is made from soybeans or rapeseed or palm oil. It's largely used in Europe, where half the EU fleet runs on diesel.
1: I know who invented diesel
4: fuel. Who, Viv? Rudolf Diesel a German in 1900 very good she's very keen isn't she listeners palm oil is the other major food stock used in biodiesel and like soybeans and vegetable oils it uses the addition of alcohol in a process called transesterification because it's made from methyl ester alcohol isn't it very good Viv Palm oil also has a high energy to production ratio, but as it's grown in the tropics, it shares the downsides of sugarcane, with the ruthless expulsion of poor farmers and indigenous groups, expanding use of virgin rainforest, and even in some cases in Papua New Guinea and Malaysia, the clearing and planting of peat swamps, resulting in massive carbon emissions and the loss of major carbon sinks. As usual, the use of biofuels started with good intentions and those intentions remain to reduce emissions from gasoline use, to bolster rural economies and to find ways to make gasoline go further, especially after the OPEC embargo in 1973 and the Iranian revolution in 1978. So...
1: Wasn't this mandated by government?
4: (laughs) It is a familiar story, Viv. (laughs) And it was mandated by government. In 1978, the US government passed a law exempting fuel with 10% ethanol from the fuel excise tax. And in 1980, they put a tariff on ethanol imports to stop cheaper, more powerful ethanol coming in from Brazil. Well... How did business influence that decision? They usually have a hand in these things. There was a Minnesota corn farmer called Duane Anderson who manufactured fructose corn syrup and later massive amounts of ethanol and he became a major contributor to political campaigns and the founder of the global agricultural giant ADM. This all led to the industry being subsidised for decades to the tune of billions of dollars from taxpayers and grocery shoppers. Anyway, Viv, you know the answer to this easy one. When was the so-called biofuel decade?
1: Um, 2000 to 2010.
4: Correct. You win the new electric car and solar panel printing unit. <laughs> <laughs> the US Clean Air Act of 2002 required the use of a clean additive like ethanol, particularly in smoggy areas. And the amount of corn planted in the United States in this decade doubled every three to four years. By 2010, the US was the largest ethanol producer in the world, with 13 billion gallons of ethanol, twice the production of Brazil. Corn farmers were making a mint and buying new farm machinery. In 2005, Hurricane Katrina knocked out oil production in the Gulf of Mexico and this added to pressure to find alternatives. Meanwhile, in Europe, as a response to climbing carbon emissions, more than 40 countries mandated the use of biodiesel and the EU aimed to replace 5.7% of fuel with biodiesel by 2010 and 10% by 2020. But, Da-da-da-dum. yes, an unintended consequence, Viv necessarily unforeseeable for those who could see indeed as demand for corn and oil seeds rose so did the prices of other grains fewer soybeans were planted in the u.s and as more rapeseed and sunflowers were grown in europe less wheat was planted there and in other wheat exporting countries By 2007 to 8, prices of soya beans were up 75% and global wheat stocks declined by half. But what about rice? Half the world's population depends on rice for most of its calories. Yes, Viv, even though rice is not a biofuel crop, as the price of other grains rose, by 2008 the price of rice had tripled. How come I didn't notice? Well, we hardly notice these prices, Viv. We only spend 14% of our daily income on food. In the developing world, people spend 50 to 70% of their daily income. So these price spikes drove up to 100 million people into hunger and poverty.
1: What about other reasons for increased prices of grains like drought, high oil prices, you know the Green Revolution and increased amounts
4: going to chicken and pig feed in India and China? That's true, of course Viv, but most researchers and economists suggest that biofuel production and massive global investment played a very big part in these price increases.
1: Enter the Wolves of Wall Street.
4: Oh, Well, Viv, I'm glad there's something you don't know. Only wealthy farmers could afford the start-up costs and machinery for transforming corn and cane to ethanol. So large agribusiness took over from small, diverse farmers. By 2010, one quarter of Brazil's ethanol production was foreign-owned. And as prices rose and profits increased, investors included the largest global companies in the energy, agriculture and financial worlds. Well, like who? Name names. Royal Dutch Shell, Goldman Sachs, the Soros Group, British Petroleum, Cargill, Mitsubishi and others less well-known to us. Then, with the the global financial crash they started to see dollar signs in biofuel. And how did government regulations help them? Well, in 2000, the US government, I think they reduced regulations
1: on financial markets that had been in place since the 1930s, and then stockbrokers created something called the Commodities Basket, as a new financial
4: instrument for speculation in commodities. Indeed, Viv. And so, when the GFC happened, the move to commodities was easy Ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. and while children around the world missed meals Goldman Sachs among others made one billion dollars on agricultural investments in 2009 the big golden boot of capitalism rests heavily on the necks of the poor oh Professor Pym I didn't know you were a poet oh I dabble Viv I dabble And here's someone with a different view. Viv, can you guess who this is? Globalised, industrialised food is too costly for the earth, for the farmers, for our health. Hmm, I don't know. Give me a clue. Is it a woman? Yes. The earth can no longer carry the burden of groundwater mining, pesticide pollution, disappearance of species and the destabilisation of the climate. Oh, it sounds so familiar. Maybe it's an Australian. No, not an Australian. Industrial agriculture is incapable of producing enough food for all because it is wasteful of land, water and energy. Give me a hint. She's from... India. Yes. And her name begins with V. Vandana Shiva. Yes. I've got it. But let's get back to the book, End of Plenty. What does Joel K. Byrne say we can do? He says, reduce the amount of corn ethanol produced and restore regulation of commodity markets. But didn't that happen
1: already with um, Obama, President Obama's government? Didn't they attempt that in
4: 2010? Yes, and this was passed by Congress. But in the face of ferocious lobbying by guess who, it remains in limbo several years later. And now the latest president will no doubt let it wither on the vine. And the G20 is calling for re-regulation of financial markets. Well, there's
1: a lot at stake. So what did
4: you say about baguettes before? There seems to be a direct link between high food prices and instability and violence. In 2011 in Tunisia, the price of wheat and bread rose hugely and people were people waving baguettes as symbols of protest massed on the streets. They started the first waves of the Arab Spring. Well, maybe we need to go and buy a few baguettes, Professor Pim. Excellent, Viv. Let's wave a whole bunch of baguettes. Good night, listeners. We're off to the bakers. Good night.
2: Thanks to our guests tonight, Claire Westwood by Skype from Penang, Alan Broaden in Victoria, and Robin Laurie as Professor Pym. Thanks to the team, Jodie, Teddy, Roger, and Viv. I'm Andy, and I hope you tune in next week to the Beyond Zero Emission show. Now stay tuned for Save Albert Park.